Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Jan Tallon. Jan is the founding engineer of Skype and file sharing service Kazaa and co-founder of the Center of the Study of Existential Risk at the University of Cambridge and the Future of Life Institute. Jan, welcome to World of DAS. Thanks for inviting me. I'm very excited that you're here. What are the biggest threats to humanity that you see right now? By far the biggest risk currently, as we stand, comes from uncontrolled AI. Basically, the way I've been putting it is that AI labs, and by extension humanity, is trying to make AI as smart as quickly as possible while using the fact that it is dumb to control it. And this situation cannot go on forever. But like that said, of course, like AI is not the only risk. I do think that advanced bio capabilities will pose a distant second. And then we have like a long list of more nuclear war or other types of things. Yeah, it turns out that it's kind of difficult to kill everyone with detonating all the nuclear arsenal, but it's like, this is based on our model. We might be wrong about those models. So like there might be some nuclear definitely was an existential risk. It was the first man-made existential risk that humanity faced because there was a period from mid-30s to mid-40s during which we did not know whether the planet can survive a nuclear detonation or not. And then, of course, we find out in 45 that it could. Given that you think AI is such a big potential risk to humanity, what should we be doing differently right now? First of all, it's just I think people who are closer to AI development, especially the research side, just should have like more humility. I'm glad to see that more and more people are kind of recognizing this now, that look, we really don't know how to make AI do what we want once it becomes sufficiently smart to do things like be deceptive. Already, like if you look at ChatGPT, etc., it's not really doing exactly what creators wanted it to do. It serves as a demonstration, like we just don't know how to make the AI do the exact thing what we want. Yeah, just like have more humility how big this could get and how to ensure that if it gets big, it will be aligned. And how do we encourage, so just talking about how do we encourage that amongst researchers? Because if you're working on creating some sort of like sentient being, maybe humility isn't one of the first things that you would have in your arsenal. I'm not saying this is easy. Like what I've done for the last 10 years is basically investing in AI companies than just like hanging around in their kitchens <laughs> talking about how things go wrong. The nice thing is that like these discussions are almost always very interesting. It's not just trying to scold people or something. It's just like, okay, let's see what are the limits at the limit where things could go and what are those hidden assumptions that we have about current situations that might get violated, et cetera, and then just like kind of expand people's thinking like that. So this is like one concrete example that I have. There are these movies where these groups of people go and try to kill all the AI researchers and stuff like that. What's the level of threat that we have and how worried should we be about it? You mean level of threat from AI? You could just ban AI development or something. Like You could do certain things to at least try to slow it down if you're so worried about it. There might be other ways to attack if you're really worried that the AI is going to kill all the humans. There might be ways to stop humans to work on it today, etc. I do think that it's important to think about, I call them like symmetric strategies. This kind of like applies both to AI safety, but also like AI capabilities. If you're thinking that like, okay, we just need our people to do X, 
then this is asymmetric strategy. Ideally, you want a strategy where it doesn't really matter who exactly does that. So in that sense, we need to take some kind of like hostile action that is like by definition asymmetric strategy because there's like a receiving end to that strategy. Whereas like, I don't know what would be a good example of symmetric strategy. Let's all be more thoughtful and more wise here. I mean, it's like not very effective strategy, but it is a symmetric strategy. You talk a lot about the concept of like aligned AI. What does it mean to you and how does that get implemented in practice? Both are difficult questions. (laughs) First one is easier. Second one is nobody knows. I have like this story, like a few years, in fact, like almost a few decades, more than a decade ago, when I was in an argument with one AGI developer back then, and who said that, yeah, and what you're doing about the safety thing is just completely pointless because once you have AIs that are super intelligent, what they are going to do is going to be completely unpredictable to us, just like rabbits cannot predict what humans will do. And my response to him was that, wait a minute, why are you engaged in a project with a goal of making the world random and unpredictable? Shouldn't we want to build a better future rather than a random future. If you were running OpenAI, you're investors at many, many of these companies and organizations. What should they be doing differently besides just having some humility? How could they be adding some of this safeguards into the process? Going back to the previous question, what I mean by alignment on a large frame, I mean just having AIs similar understanding what a good future looks like than humans would have if we were smarter. It's also important to kind of not ossify our understanding and our moral understanding as it is now in the 21st century, but can code this like underlying dynamic. Now, when it comes to how to achieve the situation where AIs actually would build future instead of humans or with humans that we would consider good, there's like a many increasingly big community of AI safety, AI alignment community has been thinking about these things. There are no good answers there, but there are some general approaches. Like one big question is like how much can be delegated to AIs when it comes to figuring out how to build aligned AIs. And so like ideally in kind of abstract, you would want to have AIs also get more aligned as they get more competent. In fact, that was like one of the early retorts from people in AGI development saying that, well, if they are so smart, why would they be dangerous? Because they would, of course, understand what it means to be like aligned. And then, of course, the retort is, of course, they would understand, but they wouldn't be motivated. Just like humans are no longer motivated to maximally reproduce, though like we are sort of ostensibly built for that. Let's say we have these AIs that get super, super smart. Is there a sense that one AI, because it's just marginally smarter than all the other AIs, takes over? Or is there a world where you just have competing AIs? And what's better? Is 20 competing AIs better than one that actually completely takes over? I think I just don't know. It feels to me that the world where you have like multiple competing AIs that are smart enough to develop their successors, that are basically better AI researchers and AI developers than humans are, it feels unstable because like any early leads that one AI would have would probably amplify over time so that its successor will get smarter quicker than the successors of the second place AI. I might be wrong about this. This is a question about what are the real world frictions when it comes to developing successors for an AI. My money would be 
on the singleton situation where you have like one AI that just goes through there, what's known as an intelligence explosion, just developing smarter and smarter AIs. And how do you think we should be training it 15 years ago when Microsoft and stuff were coming out of AIs? They kind of stopped the public project because a lot of people accused their AI of being racist. And then now you have with like chat GPT, a lot of people are accusing it of being like woke on the other side. How do you actually bring your own morality into AI? On a fundamental level, we don't know. That's why you know, chat GPT is failing. It's so easy to jailbreak because like we just don't know how to do it properly. And also like importantly, this is like the easy mode. This is like AIs that are not as smart as we are. They're not AIs that are developing their own successors. It's kind of discouraging that we're already failing when it comes to alignment. From my standpoint, it seems like the Turing test is no longer an interesting, relevant thing anymore. When I spoke to Oren Etzioni, the CEO of AI2, he was trying to figure out like, okay, what are the major markers that at least we could see that would indicate that AGI is getting closer or getting close at hand? Like, what do you look for? Like, what are the markers that you would be looking for to see, okay, wow, we should, we really start to get worried now? I don't think I have like very good markers. Like you can obviously put some kind of thresholds. It still could be useful to have like some kind of threshold. I mean, there are a couple of markets on Metaculous, for example, when it comes to predicting certain AI capability levels. I think they potentially could be useful, but because like AI is so different mind than humans, I think it's very hard to confidently say that if AI cannot do X, then it would be safe. It just might do something that is like, why? And use it in a way that's just completely alien to us to actually do a lot of damage. This podcast has been recorded about a week after Google released their chatbot AI, which is a competitor to Microsoft's chat GPT powered Bing. We're already seeing this commercial pressures and competition with the AI. Do you think that's a good thing because that allows us to bring in more humanity and stuff like that? Or do you think that like could make it more dangerous? I've heard this argument a couple of times that it's kind of like useful to have AI capabilities public as quick as possible so like the society could prepare. I do think that argument has some weight behind it. In some ways, it would be bad to have like just a lab prepare a super capable AI and then just release it like 10 years to like completely unprepared audience. But I don't think that these are decisive arguments. The counter argument there is that basically releasing things publicly like ChatGPT, it just would fuel the race in a way that is very counterproductive when it comes to safety, because I just, I don't know if anyone at Google is really considering long-term implications of AIs that can develop their own AIs, etc. I bet would be on no. Obviously, that's a well-known thing. People have been blogging about it, writing about it, and obviously yourself and Eliezer Yukowski and many, many others have been talking about it. And you don't think that's starting to prevail or at least permeate within Google? I don't know. I haven't like seen any signs of it. But like, of course, I sit thousands of kilometers away from Google HQ. So it's possible that I just am not seeing it. But like, I have not seen it. Interesting. So do you think something like AGI is a prerequisite for taking major steps as a species, whether it be interplanetary travel or is there some sort of like step function that really gets set in motion when we get to that point? I think so, yes. In some ways, if you look at like what's been happening on this planet, then clearly there have been step functions. 
one-step function we are just going through right now, even without AI. Holden Karnowski has this wonderful series of blog posts called The Most Important Century, where he basically explains that, look, this thing cannot go on. Like If you have 2% GDP growth for like 10,000 years, you will have like multiple Earth-sized economies per each atom in the universe. This cannot go on for thousands of years. How does it break? Does it break by the world destroying itself or does it break through some other type of way? That's like a different question. Basically, the point is that it has to break. Otherwise, you just, we run out of atoms. Like exponentials don't go on that far. It will turn into S curve. But yeah, there are these like step functions and it's kind of very plausible that the next step function will be when you have minds that can self-improve in the form of AI and digital minds. And now the question is, yeah, like how does that influence what will happen to humans? One of the assumptions that humans have is that we are the smartest species. The world and the universe is our oyster. Once we have AI, once we have AGI, once we have something that is smarter than us, well, of course, we're just going to use it for doing interstellar travel, etc. But it's like rabbits are not using humans to their ends. But dogs are. Yeah, like kind of like banking out on the name. The author of Sapiens, Harari, he mentions that he kind of reframes how wheat <laughs> used humans to proliferate. So like, yeah, you can train <laughs> things in an interesting way, yes. How do you think of great power competition as a threat to humanity? I mean, you live just a few kilometers away from Russia. How do you think about that? I am following the world news literally every day from Ukraine. As an Eastern European, there have been like so many friends who have been saying that, look, we Eastern European can't just like saying that, like, told you so. This is what Russia looks at in its heart. This is like sort of an acute situation. But as for this bigger question, clearly, I do think that races are not good for safety. But I do think that the currently the more relevant races are happening in the US, within the US, rather than internationally. But like, of course, this might change. One thing I've heard you talk about is how fluid our values are over time. How can we keep that in mind when we're planning for the future or thinking about how to move to society? I don't think I have like a very good answer there, but I think realizing this is like a first step. Walk me through how our values have changed. How should we think about what has happened? Right now, I'm just listening to the latest podcast episode from 80,000 Hours. Christopher Brown talks about abolition of slavery and basically... His thesis is that it wasn't like a natural thing to occur. There was like a bunch of contingent developments that actually led to it. So that's like an example of more progress. His theory is we could have been a world as rich as we are today, potentially, with still having slaves. Yeah. Again, it is like a claim. An alternative present could have been that. Yes, potentially. Interesting. The claim is that our values currently going to feel very natural, but we shouldn't be fully invested that there had to be this way or fade a couple years yeah that the progress is kind of automatic and we have reached the peak so we need to be at least aware of it now of course the question is like how do you, how do you use ai how do you encode more progress to ai even in a situation where there might be kind of contingent facts about our history so you can't just like point to the history and say that like this is the inevitable march of morality you spend the vast majority of your time thinking about existential risk, which in some ways is a particular pessimistic line of work. What makes you feel optimistic about humanity? I'm a technologist. I do think that I'm mostly sort of techno-optimistic, but like, yeah, AI is sort of like a weird case where it's things will get better and better until they stop. 
It's like the Thanksgiving turkey example type of thing. Exactly, exactly, yes. But like with all the other, not everything, I mean, there are like military technologies that I'm pretty concerned about. I think in general, there is like this trend of, I think somebody in AI alignment community put it a loss of locality, which means that the effective radius of technologies is getting bigger, but the planet isn't. So like getting easier and easier to affect bigger and bigger swaths of planet kind of unilaterally. Where do you agree and where do you maybe disagree with like a Steven Pinker? I haven't actually read his books. I only know like secondhand and I've seen like many kind of reasonable sounding rebuttals for what it's worth. I have actually had like a debate with him many years ago at Sydney Opera House. And I think he just was completely wrong there about his kind of claim was that, oh, look, there always have been, I'm not saying that he's kind of like still holds this viewpoint. I hope he doesn't. There always have been like these doomsayers. So like when somebody can be classified as a doomsayer, you should just listen to them. But it's like, I think, counter argument that I wish I had back then, only later I was able to think about it. It's like, look, you can say that to Manhattan Project scientists who were actually did calculations about what is the probability of igniting the atmosphere. That was the first example of existential risk research. I guess somebody who would hold opinions like Steven Pinker back then would have just walked to the room and saying like, look, you're being doom-mongers here. Stop your calculations because I already know the answer is going to be no risk to, to the planet. Do you think there's some sort of like personality where somebody would gravitate more to these existential risk issues? I find it very intellectually interesting to think about every once in a while, but I think if I was thinking about this every day, I would be like very sad and unhappy and maybe not so great around my kids and stuff like that. So do you think there's a certain personality that people gravitate toward it? Yeah. I mean, first of all, I don't think about them like literally every day. Before this call was like coding up a Lisp interpreter, <laughs> so like a studio <laughs> okay, cool. bunch of coding and just <laughs> technology development and investing, etc. I saw like an interesting essay, like a draft of an essay. I don't know if it's going to be out anytime. Oh, if it's already out, I'm not actually sure. The author claimed that there's a interesting correlation between people who are concerned about existential risks to species and people who are physicists. If you look at the people, the prominent people, there's like a bias, basically. If you're a physicist, you're more likely than non-physicist to be concerned. Like one explanation there is that, and yes, I am a physicist by education. So it's one way of framing it is that you are naturally taught that the world is composed of atoms or wave function, if you want to go deeper. If something happens to the atoms, that's really bad news. It's not just something for chemists to worry. One mindset is someone who thinks about the world as a collection of atoms or is somebody who thinks of the world as a collection of people. And if you think about it as a collection of people, then it's kind of like less natural category to worry about existential risks that come from rearrangement of atoms. Could you also say that the counter would be the golden age of physics has maybe passed People who did physics were way more celebrated in the 30s and 40s and stuff like that. So it would make more sense for someone in physics to be more of a philosopher or something where that's always in fashion to be a philosopher. That is a good point because like indeed, like one puzzle I have is that because like computer scientists, they seem to be on average, I think that was also the point of the essay, that computer scientists seem to be more dismissive than non-computer scientists. And I think part of it is because they're just so busy <laughs> advancing the frontier. So they have like less time on their hands to like step back and think about, okay, where are we heading with this? Now, a couple of questions on tech. A lot of people right now accuse some of the major tech companies of being anti-competitive and stifling innovation, either by 
buying up competitors or just boxing out competitors, which is classically what big companies might do or using regulatory capture. How do you think about this? I mostly don't. What do you think are the big threats to innovation? How do we increase more innovation in the world? That's another thing that I don't much think about. It. If I'm focused on how can we make AI go well, it comes down to the things like, is growth good or not? From one hand, it is good in kind of like Peter Thiel sense that the pie gets bigger and so there will be less violence. No argument there. On the other hand, the runway also gets eaten up. So we get closer to the end of human error on this planet. And is that good? Do we want more time on this planet? But what if it comes at the bigger cost of violence? I'm not sure what the answer is. Now, we mentioned earlier you're in Estonia, and Estonia is a very forward-thinking, very tech-enabled society. People can vote over the internet, for example. Why has Estonia been able to embrace these more forward-thinking concepts? Yeah, I do get that question a lot. And my usual answer is, first of all, like it really helps to have to rebuild your infrastructure as a country when internet has already been in, in, invented. Estonia, when Russians left in 94, we just didn't much of infrastructure left and internet had already been invented. So like, oh, but I think of like, I mean, to me, when I think of Estonia versus Latvia and Lithuania, which are similar area countries with similar populations and similar situations, it does seem like Estonia is significantly more tech forward than those other two. That's another aspect. It kind of helps to have internet around, but also need like other components. For example, we had prime minister back then who was 32 years old and I was like, look, we're definitely going to do this digital signature. Everybody in Estonia should have ability to give digital signatures and government offices, it's compulsory for them to accept those digital signatures. Once that was mandated, you basically solved the chicken and egg problem where like nobody has the ability to give digital signatures. So you think if you just swap leaders at that point in time between Estonia and Latvia or something, like you would see differences going the other way? Very possible, yes. Interesting. And the other thing is, I think Skype was like really good for Estonia. There are like five countries in the world who think that Skype was their invention, but I think Estonia by far has milked <laughs> this invention <laughs> <laughs> the most. Again, I say that, first of all, it kind of served as a boot camp because Skype was made in Estonia mostly. Hundreds of people got to see what it means to work for like a international startup. Second, when Skype was sold, there were a bunch of like investor money that was kind of freed up as a result and went back to feeding the ecosystem. And the third one, I think it's important because like Estonia is small and people can know each other. And when somebody kind of like makes something, then people go, oh yeah, I know that guy. That guy is not special. If he can do it, I can do it. Oh yeah, yeah. Good boy. <laughs> so now we have like many unicorns. In fact, like Estonia is first or second in the world when it comes to unicorns per capita. Wow. You're a very well-known figure in Estonia, but my guess is if you're walking around in the US, you're probably not as recognized. What's it like to be like part-time famous? Oh, it's great. Probably like not famous, even better. <laughs> so like one thing that I don't actually do in Estonia, I get this invite like every once in a while, a couple of days ago again, to go on TV. I just don't go on TV. I mean, TV is probably less relevant these days. I don't watch TV news anymore anyway. <laughs> yeah. Basically, I don't like being recognized on the streets. Even Estonia can take steps to not do that. You wear like a mustache. <laughs> no, again, like don't go on TV. <laughs> yeah. Okay. In my line of business, it really doesn't help to be kind of recognizable. So it's just a liability. Now, how did growing up in the Soviet Union influence you as an adult? So one thing that I think was important was that I grew up with my 
grandparents for many years, as my parents were students when they had me. And they were people who had their best years, their young adulthood coincide with like first independence period of Estonia. And then they saw this occupation and barely escaped war. They were like very Russophobic. And basically it's just like every day kept like harping about how good Estonia was when it was independent. That's like one thing that definitely colored my childhood and like associated distrust of authority that comes from the fact that you're living in an occupied country. The ruling class is not your nation, which I do think has been important as a background fact even. In the Soviet Union, there was a lot of this preference falsification where you had to say certain things to get by, but everyone kind of knew everyone else was saying those things to get by. How does that show your worldview today? Or? One obvious, like without saying like any kind of like object level details, I would say when I look at all these waves of cancellation and Future of Life Institutes well, had like a s- close brush with cancellation, cancel culture recently, I go like, yeah, I've seen that in Soviet Union. Well, like basically, you know, it's wrong to do X, but if you don't do X, you will be the target of X. Therefore, like you have strongly incentivized to do X. And so it's like a vicious cycle that even if you're aware of it, it's kind of hard to break. This has been very interesting and also very depressing as well. But last question we ask all of our guests, what conventional wisdom or advice do you think is generally bad advice? I'm not sure about advice, but I would say that the conventional wisdom, I would go back to this, that like this place in the time and in space is normal. It's not normal. The normal place in space is completely pitch black because you're too far from the stars to see them. The fact that we have a planet that is on room temperature, it's just like completely weird (laughs) situation when it comes to bigger spatial frame. And when it comes to time, this might be the last years of 100,000 year period, which was the period during which like human brains were the most powerful future shaping objects on this planet. We shouldn't assume that this will last. Well, thank you, Yantan, for joining us on World of Das. This has been very, very interesting. Now, I know you're not a big Twitterer or anything, but where can people find you online? I don't have like a big online profile, but I do have like a YouTube list of my talks, for example. Okay, perfect. So we'll go to YouTube and go check you out there. That'd be great. Well, thank you. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That was fun. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of Das, and Das is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you. 